We're going to get into today's teaching. It's, uh, we've got a lot to do today. This is an important topic. It's part two of a series of talks, our summer series, called Another in the Fire. And we're talking about the times in life when you need God to come through for you in a big way. This isn't the ordinary run-of-the-mill, just uh, give me my daily bread, kind of an uh, autopilot kind of a series. This is for the, those moments. They might be rare moments, but the moments in life when you need a miracle. And last week, we got this series started by talking about one of the most common ways we find ourselves in need of a miracle, and that's when our family is just falling apart. When your family's broken by betrayal or by people who have just been guilty of dereliction of duty as a parent or as a sibling, and they just betray you, and, and it all falls apart, and you're faced with a choice to live into that brokenness and, and betray them right back or to ask God for a miracle. And we looked at the story of Joseph from the book of Genesis, and we talked about how Joseph was betrayed in the most heinous ways imaginable, but God worked a miracle in Joseph's heart. God allowed Joseph to forgive the unforgivable. And whenever forgiveness really happens, and I don't just mean the surface level, yeah, I forgive you, but I'm holding this grudge like, like we usually forgive. When forgiveness really happens, it's always a miracle. It is not of this world. It's not natural. God worked a miracle in Joseph's heart. Joseph forgave his brothers and put his family back together. That was last week. And this week, we're gonna dig a little bit deeper and I'm gonna ask you for your help, your participation. I don't have a speaking role for you today or anything. If you wanna talk back, I, I, I'm from the South. I don't mind a little talk back in my messages if you're nice. And, uh, and yet I'm talking about you being there with me uh, mentally and emotionally by holding close to your heart a person or a, a group of people who you have spent a significant part of your life praying for, helping, resourcing, reaching out, talking to them, talking about them, trying to get them help because this person or these people are in dire straits. They've lost their way. They're in some kind of captivity. They're in some kind of bondage or slavery. And maybe it has something to do with uh, something beyond your control or theirs, like a mental illness like an addiction or depression or anxiety, and you've been praying for them to get the help that they need and they've resisted for whatever reason and they continue down this, this path that they're on and it just breaks your heart. We all have someone like that. We all have someone, maybe it's not mental illness, maybe it's, um, it's a grief, a deep despair, despondency that just sets in, or, or maybe it's just a problem of sin or, or a cycle of behavior that they're caught in. Some of us love someone who's trapped in a, a faithless toxicity, like they've just given up on God and it breaks your heart because you want to bring them back to God. You know, they knew God once, but they've given up on him. Maybe because the Christians that they've known have just been too toxic and mean and weird and have turned them off of God. Or maybe because they don't really want God to be real at all because they don't want to follow his rules for their life. Or maybe because they've just not found the evidence supporting the existence of God. Whatever the case, it breaks your heart and you feel like you've done everything you can. Or maybe you haven't, but you wish you had. You wish you could do something to save them, to rescue them, 
to bring them back to the path you know God has for them. That's what I want to talk about today. 3,500 years ago, the Israelite people were settling into their new life in Egypt. Now, Joseph and his brothers, that generation had all passed away. And they were comfortable in Egypt now, the Israelites. They were so comfortable. In fact, they had time on their hands. They weren't starving anymore. So, you know, when a woman's not starving anymore, it puts her in a pretty good mood. And and, uh, shockingly, the birth rate skyrocketed, okay? So they they were in a much better place. They were getting busy a lot, and it was noticeable. The new Pharaoh, the new king, who had no relationship to Joseph and his brothers, had no interest in showing the Israelites special treatment, took notice of the Israelites' birth rate. He said, they are becoming too numerous for us. We must find a way to stem the tide. We must keep these people busy lest they keep getting busy. (laughs) And so he ruled in Egypt that all the Israelites living in Egypt should no longer be considered equals or citizens or residents. They should be considered slaves. They should take the role of unpaid servants working under the hot Egyptian sun, doing unthinkable tasks, manual labor, and, and they were subjected to all kinds of abuse, not only the slavery and the, the, the unpaid work, that nearly killed them and did kill some, but also other kinds of abuses, y'all, like, like the, the Pharaoh ordered Egyptian midwives who were helping deliver the babies, including the Israelite babies. Anytime a baby boy was born to an Israelite woman, the Pharaoh ordered the midwives to slaughter the boys. And most did. There were a couple of heroes in that story you can read about, two of my favorite unsung heroes, Shua and Pua, in, uh, in <laughs> the book of Exodus, the second book in the Bible. But mostly it was death, despair, hopelessness that the Israelites were enduring. His, God's people needed a miracle, and God had a plan, apparently. Because early in the book of Exodus, we're introduced to a man named Moses, Obviously, a key figure in the Bible, even if you're not a Christian or you don't believe the Bible, you've heard of Moses. You've probably been made to watch the Charlton Heston movie, um, you know, where he plays Moses, and you probably are somewhat familiar with Moses to some degree. Moses was an Israelite by birth. He was a Hebrew, 100%. But he had a a twist of of faith that worked in his favor early in life. Instead of being slaughtered at birth like the other Israelites' boys were, he was adopted by the royal family. A member of Pharaoh's family, Pharaoh's daughter, adopted Moses as an infant. And so Moses was raised with all kinds of power and privilege that his fellow Israelites never knew. And so on the one hand, you can imagine what a lucky life he led, how fortunate he must have felt. But on the other hand, can you imagine the cognitive and emotional dissonance of growing up in a place, in a context where you have everything, but everyone who looks like you, everyone you're related to by blood, they're slaves. And this kind of disconnect wore Moses down. I think psychologically, it just wore him out. Until one day Moses was walking around town and he witnessed an Egyptian man beating one of his Israelite slaves and Moses lost it. Moses freaked out. 
jumped the uh, Egyptian guy who was assaulting the slave and beat him to a pulp, beat him to death, killing him, and then burying his body in a shallow grave in the sand. And Moses, there were witnesses, he looked around and saw, and, and Moses knew he was done. He was in trouble, and this would never be the same. And so he fled for the hills. He ran for the hills of Midian, and he built himself a new life there, a quiet life off the grid, under the radar. He met a girl, got married, settled down, became a shepherd, and he tended sheep. That's how he spent his days until God approached Moses in a burning bush, You've probably heard about that as well if you ever spent any time in vacation Bible school. A burning bush. God spoke to Moses out of the bush. And for all we know, this conversation was Moses' first interaction with the God of Israel. And so it's interesting to watch and, and to see how this unfolds because this is an introductory conversation. Moses, before this, was most likely involved with Egyptian pagan religions. And now he gets to know this God. And why it's interesting is because we get to see how God introduces himself to someone who doesn't know him yet. And so how does God introduce himself? Who is God according to God? Well, let's check this out from the book of Exodus, chapter three, verses seven and eight, and then verse 10. This is what the Lord said to Moses. I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. Pay attention to what he says. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites out of Egypt. When God introduced himself to Moses, he revealed himself to be a God who sees, I have seen the suffering of my people. God sees everything. God sees suffering. You could not say the same about every God in the ancient world or even about most gods in the ancient world who couldn't have cared less about suffering. This is a God who sees. He said, I have heard the cries of the oppressed, my people, as they've cried out under the oppression of slavery. He sees and he hears. He said, I am concerned. This is not a God who, who sees and hears from a distance, uncaring, unloving. This God is concerned. He feels empathy, compassion for those who hurt. I have seen, I have heard, I am concerned. So I have come down. This is a God who comes to us. This is the definition of grace. Almighty God in the heavens who comes to us on our turf when we are suffering, when we cry out, when he is concerned. And then finally, God says, so I am sending you, Moses. And there's the plot twist. This good God, full of righteousness, full of mercy, full of love, has chosen to intervene. He has come down to save those he's concerned about and... To accomplish that task, he's chosen the murderer to go and set his people free. Of all people, <laughs> why this one? 
Moses was full of questions, understandably so. And I'm gonna walk us through the five questions Moses asked God because they remind me of questions I've asked God. They remind me of questions I've seen you asking God whenever God sets a mission before you to reach the one who I asked you to be thinking about, the one you care about, who's wandering or lost or hurting. What do you say and how do you respond? Well, Moses' first response was, who am I? His first question, plain and simple, who am I? And this is so interesting to me because uh, typically our first layer of doubts about God have less to do with God than they have to do with us. And when Moses said, who am I? It wasn't like an existential crisis. He, 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 didn't, he wasn't like looking for himself. It, and sometimes we, we get this confused. It's not like he didn't know who he was. Moses knew exactly who he was. That's why he's asking. He, it's not that he doesn't know. He knows who am I is not some false humility. Who am I is, is a real doubt about his own worth as a murderer on the run, a deserter, a coward, a criminal. How many ways do I have to prove that I'm unworthy, God, is what Moses is saying when he said, who am I? But what was God's response to Moses' first question, I will be with you, which isn't really a response to the question at all. God didn't even acknowledge Moses' question. All he said was, I will be with you. Does God, I thought God listened. Was he not listening to Moses' question? No, this is actually a really poignant answer to Moses' question if you, if you, if you listen close and if you know God. This is absolutely an answer to Moses' question. I will be with you as a way of saying that whenever God calls you and sends you to go and accomplish some mission or task that he has for you, it shouldn't be an impediment to us that we have a track record that's less than stellar. But how often do we allow our past deeds, our track record to determine our present worth? Like Moses, we think, no way am I the one God means to call. No way could God use me because I've done this, that, or whatever. And I, oof, that hits me in the chest because if you know my story, you know from 2000 to 2013, I was a pastor, but I wasn't a Christian yet. It's a long story and you can find it on the internet somewhere. And, uh, or let's get coffee or whatever, but it was, a, it was my reality and during those years, I led far more people away from God than I led to him. I gave people more reasons to doubt the Bible than I gave them reasons to believe it. I spent more time justifying my own sin than I spent repenting of it. And you don't think every time I get ready to come up here and speak, I, that doesn't cross my mind? The things that I've done, the people I've misled, wondering if they've found their way back, in spite of me, like all of that, if I'm not careful, if I'm not prayed up and ready, all of that can come back to haunt me. Every time God sends me to, to do something for, for him in his name. And the same is true for all of us. We can all be defined by our past if we aren't prepared to trust God. When God says, I will be with you, it is an acknowledgement that when he does the sending, the character of the sender matters infinitely more than the character of the one who sent. And his righteousness is what's on the line, not yours. 
And so when he sets a task before you, don't let yourself be distracted or dismayed by your past or the mistakes you've made in the past. If anything, God can take even your past and tell a great story with it, a story that the ones he sends you to reach will resonate with and will listen to, all right? So that's Moses' first question and God's first response. Of course, that's not satisfactory entirely to Moses because he keeps asking questions. Moses is, is not without his questions. And the second one he asks, after asking, who am I? He says, who are you? Suppose I go to the Israelites and say, the God of your father sent me to you. And they say, well, what's his name? (laughs) Then what shall I tell them? This is another clue that Moses didn't really know this God at all, but he wanted to. And that's important. Moses wanted to know this God. So he asked his name and God answered, I am who I am. Hmm. That statement has mystified Bible scholars for centuries. What's going on with that response? I am who I am. We'll get back to it in a second. The first thing I want to say is it's so important that you acknowledge your heart's desire. Every human being has some desire in them to know God. You can't really know yourself until you know God. This is uh, something John Calvin said in his famous work, The Institutes on the Christian Religion. He said, there is no knowledge of of the self outside of a knowledge of God. And he's not saying you have to be the right member of the right church or whatever. He's just saying, if God is God, this just makes logical sense. If God is God, then God is reality. There is no reality. There's nothing to be known outside of him. If he is God, he is everything. He is, he is all things. He is alpha. He is omega. And so, and so to know yourself is to know God first in a way. That's what Calvin uh, said, and I, I believe it. And when Moses asked God, what's your name? God said this, I am who I am thing, which if you have teenagers at home, it hits a little close to home. You're like, I am who I am. You know, it's like, <laughs> is this snark? Like, what is this? <laughs> Deal with it. I, it is what it is. You know, <laughs> what's happening? Obviously, there's, there's a lot more going on here. This, the, this five-word phrase is so profound, but it is God's way of saying, I am reality. I am the foundation of objectivity. Uh, I am eternal. No one made me. Uh, I am infinite. My power doesn't grow uh, weary. I don't, I don't lose power. I don't get tired. And of course, that same phrase, I am, was repeated 1,500 years after God said it to Moses. In John chapter 8, Jesus is catching heat for saying that he and Abraham used to talk. And Abraham lived 1,800 years before Jesus. And so Jesus' detractors were like, dude, you're not even 50 years old and you were talking to Abraham, huh? Yeah, tell us more. And Jesus is like, listen, fellas, before Abraham was, I am. So you have from cover to cover in scripture, this idea that God is unchanging yesterday, today, forever. God is the Lord. God is Jesus Christ. God is forever. Okay. So 
Um, the reason this matters to us is because when you try to do everything in your power to help the person I asked you to think about, to help that one you love who's lost and just fighting some battle that seems unwinnable against some enemy that seems invincible and you feel powerless to help them overcome it, you will be tempted to throw up your hands and give up because you will become convinced at times, if you're not careful, that winning that battle, getting through to them, saving them is up to you. But God telling Moses, I am who I am, is preparing the way for Moses to understand saving people is God's work, not Moses's or yours or mine. It comes from his power not yours. Now you can be a channel for that power, but when it comes to saving people and you're out there getting discouraged, feeling like a failure because nothing you're trying is working, it's important, vital, essential that you remember when it comes to saving people and doing the work of the Lord in the real world, it's not what you know. It's who you know. And when you know the great I am, it's his righteousness and his power that takes center stage and not your own. I am who I am, God told Moses. Moses, inquisitive as ever, had a third question for God. Exodus chapter four, verse one. What if they don't believe me or listen to me and they say the Lord didn't even appear to you? Well, this is a tough one. Uh, this, I think, is the most poignant question Moses asked, and this is the most common question of the ones he asked that we asked today. One of the reasons y'all have trouble talking to your friends and neighbors and peers about Jesus is this question right here. What if they don't believe me or listen to me? What if they say, you don't know what you're talking about? All right? Uh, you don't think I ask these questions every Sunday morning about 7 a.m.? When I get ready to get up here and talk to you, what if they don't believe me, God? What if they don't listen to me? Every Sunday, this is on my mind because this kind of human anxiety can creep in. What if they say the Lord did not appear to you? This is the third question that Moses asked, all right? So what do we do with this question? Um, God's answer is uh, plain and simple. He says, what is that in your hand? Again, not really answering the question at all. Uh, what is that in your hand? And Moses is like, I asked you a question, bro. And he's like, what is that in your hand? And Moses had in his hand a shepherd's staff, nothing dazzling, just his work instrument. And then God proceeded to work a miracle with the shepherd's staff. And then after that, God said, Moses, look at your hand, a normal hand. He said, put it in your pocket. He pulled it out of his pocket and it was all leprous and gross with sores and withered. And Moses freaked out, understandably. And God said, put your hand back in your pocket. And he did it. Another miracle, his hand went back to normal. God was working these miracles to instill in Moses a sense of confidence that even when Moses felt like his story wasn't compelling enough, that his past wasn't righteous enough, that he didn't have what it takes, that God would give him a story to tell that people would find compelling. This is the the takeaway that God can use whatever you have in your hands to do something miraculous to give you a credible testimony. Are you hearing me? 
whatever you have in your hands. No matter how dirty or clean your hands are, no matter where you've been in life, whatever you bring with you to God in your hands or even in your heart, God can take it, work a miracle and give you a story to tell. When I was writing this message, I had in mind a certain subset of people. We've always been about the skeptics, right? At the story for these past six and a half years. I've always wanted to reach people who the church has often deemed unreachable, people who have no interest in religion whatsoever. They're my sweet spot. They're the ones I think about and pray about the most, especially young adults who are just younger than me, who have been raised in a culture that is intent on indoctrinating them. Like, y'all, if you're in your 20s or 30s, teens, 20s, and 30s, the level of indoctrination that you're up against every day is, is unprecedented. Like, you're being pressured all the time from the left and the right by the news media, by social media, by your peer groups, by academia, to, to give in to one polarized tribe or the other. You have to pick a side. You have to, to defend your beliefs. You have to be on the right side of history and all this stuff all the time. It's exhausting to people. Are you woke? Are you anti-woke? Are you anti-racist? Are you racist? Are you pro-life or are you pro-women's rights? Are you, do you love LGBT people? Do you hate LGBT people? And, and all of these binary choices that we have are wearing us down. And what I see happening to these people that I love and I, I care about so much is that those who are to my left are being tempted to just give in to hedonism and say anything goes. And those who I love to my right are being tempted to give in to things like hate and fear both being tempted by tribalism. And I just want them to know this other way that doesn't land neatly in either side, this way of Jesus that's transcendent and a different dimension. That's what I live for. It makes me think about this family that found their way to the story one time by accident, actually. We were in the gym still. It was our first year of existence. And this family had just moved to Houston from Chicago. And they accidentally came to the story. They thought they were going to a different church and they just stumbled in and we didn't tell them that they were in the wrong place. We just said, welcome. And they uh, <laughs> never left. So uh, they, they settled in and I'm not sure either one of them would have de described themselves as Christian at the time. They were, they were cross curious at the time. Okay, so he was a little further along than she was but they had just moved here from Chicago and she had just left a really awesome job in Chicago as a producer for Oprah Winfrey. It was Oprah Winfrey show and Oprah Winfrey, Winfrey, Oprah Winfrey network producer. So obviously all this talent, all this potential, but just not real sure where she stood with God. But as we got to know her, Gio and I got to know her, um, when we heard what she does for a living um, and, and how skilled she is, we immediately, of course, uh, took her out to coffee and offered her a job, at which point, <laughs> a part-time job that paid nothing um, because it was our first year and we didn't have anything. And, and she told us, she was like, look, I'm not even sure I'm a Christian. I'm not even sure I'm in with what you're selling yet. And we were like, so when can you start? And, <laughs> and most of you, some of you have gotten to know uh, Julie uh, since then, Julie M., uh, Julie Merely Courtois, she's French. We call her Julie Miraculous because no one can say Merely Courtois. And uh, over the past six or so 
years, most of you have gotten familiarized with her work. Because when Julie came on board, she brought with her not just her talent, but her heart for people who, like her, wanted to know love her whole life, wanted a loving community, a loving father, a loving connection with God her whole life, but never really found it, never really knew it was even out there or available. And when she found it in Christ, she wanted nothing more than her secular friends to know about this love as well. But she didn't know how to strike up one-on-one conversations. She felt like God was sending her to them as a missionary of sorts, but she didn't know what to do or what to say without sounding like a, a sidewalk preacher weirdo. And so it was like God said to Julie in those days, what do you have in your hands? And Julie was like, I've got a camera and a notebook and a microphone. And six years later, she's produced dozens of videos that have been watched by tens of thousands of people, most of whom would never step foot in a church when they watch those videos. Or, or, or we've got this online ministry now that's reaching hundreds every Sunday. We've got the Maybe God podcast that uh, was really just a, the, the, the thought, the result of, of Julie and mine, and Giovanna and other people at the story going, how do we talk to people who hate Christians so much that they won't come to church? And the Maybe God podcast was born. Now every time we drop an episode, there's like 4,000 people that listen within a couple of weeks. And that's because one time, six plus years ago, a French woman who was a skeptic accidentally walked into a church and God said, what do you have in your hands? And she says, this is what I have. Maybe you don't have the, the resume. Maybe you've never produced for Oprah, I'm guessing. Maybe you don't have that kind of skill and you're thinking, well, that's a good story, but that's not me. Listen, whatever you have in your hands or your heart, God can use to work miracles like you cannot even fathom now. Now, even if that's something as as ordinary as uh, maybe in, in your hands today, you have a family. There's a family on your hands that you're raising. And what if you raise those kids in ways that didn't reflect the culture, but that reflected the cross? What kind of a difference could those kids make if you gave that over to God? Or even something as mundane as a, <laughs> I hesitate to say this one, but Men, it's Father's Day, so here you go. Here's your Father's Day gift, okay? Even something as mundane as a golf club in your hand. Do you know that God can take a golf club and work miracles? I don't mean that one shot you hit every time, you know, or you're like, yeah, I'm coming back because I'm going on the tour. That one shot that uh, keeps you coming back. No, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about there have been, I've seen just as many men's lives changed on the golf course by their friends or family members who poured the love of Christ into them. It never happens on Sunday mornings. Only Monday through Saturday is when this happens on the golf course. Sunday mornings, it's cursed. I don't know why, but, but lives are changed in that way if you give something as mundane as your golf game to the Lord and change the conversation from hole to hole, representing this love you found in Christ to your brothers on the course. It's an opportunity, even if it's just a checkbook in your hands, even if you just have nothing but time on your hands, God can take that and work miracles to reach the people you have in mind. Right now, the people who are fighting a seemingly unwinnable 
battle, right? The Lord asked Moses, what do you have in your hands? And I think he asked us the same question today. All right, the fourth and fifth questions kind of go together, okay? So I'm gonna blow through these uh, together. The fourth question Moses said, is, this is a paraphrase, what if I don't have what it takes? This is where Moses said, I don't talk real good, you know, all that stuff. Basically, he's asking, what if I don't have what it takes? And uh, God's response is, now go. Just kind of, I, I, I read this between the lines, like, shut up and go. <laughs> enough, enough with the, the hamster wheel of doubt. He's just not moving on no matter what God does. Now go, I will help you. And then the fifth and final question that Moses asked, <laughs> it's not really a question, but I love it. Please send someone else. <laughs> okay, let's get real. If you were God at this point in the conversation, like how exhausted would you feel with Moses? Like you came to this guy on his turf, you spoke his language, you introduced yourself nicely, you worked some miracles with his hand and all that's pretty cool tricks. And like you're, you're offering this murderer a pretty good job, okay? Liberator of his people, known for all time, famous for eternity. Like, it's a pretty good gig for a murderer, okay? And, and all he does is continually doubt you, he treats you like a, a stranger and, and doubts everything that you say. If I was God in this conversation, I would just, I'd be done with Moses. I would have given up on him. Like, gosh, man, I got other things to do. I got a universe to run, you know? I, I can call someone else to do this. But it's amazing to me, the gracious patience of God. God is so patient with us. Thank God I'm not God because he is so much more patient with me than I am with him or with myself or with y'all. He is more patient than us. He is more gracious than us. He is more willing to put up with questions than we often are. I mean, just the questions, they never stop until finally Moses says, just send somebody else. And look at God's response. Instead of, fine, whatever, I'm out. He says, your brother Aaron's already on his way. He had already sent Aaron to Moses before Moses even knew he would need Aaron. Remember when Jesus said, your father knows what you need before you even ask. This is how gracious our God is. God had already orchestrated a response to a prayer Moses hadn't even prayed yet. He had already sent Aaron. And it wasn't to replace Moses either. Maybe that's what Moses thought at first. Thank God it's Aaron that has to do all of this now. He said, I'm gonna give you the words to say to Aaron and until you're ready, Aaron can speak for you and for me. But how gracious is this God? Now, most of you, because I know your hearts, you've already given a lot of time and energy and prayer and money maybe to help the person you have in your mind. And the problem has persisted and you feel desperate. You feel powerless to really affect any change. And I understand what that's like, I've been there, you've done everything, but they're still stuck and you feel like a failure and you're out of ideas. But remember that God is more patient than you. He is more faithful than you. He is more creative than you. He is more powerful than you. He is the I am. So even when you feel powerless, he is not. And so even when you are done, 
when you are weak, he is strong. He is enough. Now that was good news for Moses and the Israelites back then. Y'all know how this ends, right? Moses frees the, the Israelites from their captivity by the power of God, parts the Red Sea. They all pass through into the promised land, toward the promised land. There's a little bit of a journey ahead, but, but he gets them out of Egypt as God intended. It was good news when Moses spoke to the burning bush, but it's even better news for us today. Can I tell you why before I close? Why it's even better news for us? It's because since the days of Moses, another one has come, the one who said, I am. And in light of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the fire of the burning bush, the fire of God's presence, the fire that is his spirit has left the hills of faraway lands and come into every believer's heart so that you no longer have to search for God's presence way out there somewhere where places you don't even know. He's not hiding from you. He has come near and the fire of God's presence is available to you, not just sometimes, not just when you're living right, but at all times you can become a temple the presence of God. Tim Keller put it this way in his book, and then I'll stop talking. Tim Keller said, the fire of God's glorious presence that Moses saw in the burning bush has come into us. Every Christian is now a small burning bush, a new creation being made into Christ's image as we behold his glory by faith. God is still in the business of setting captives free the one you love, the people you are concerned about, who are caught in some kind of captivity, the ones you have no idea what to do for. God is as concerned for them as he was for the Israelites in Moses' day. And today he might be asking you the same questions he asked Moses. What do you have in your hands? For I am sending you to go and preach freedom and deliverance to those who are in captivity. Friends, uh, I know how easy it is to lose hope when a battle has gone on for so long and when the one you wish you could save is so stubborn about it. They seem so unwilling to cooperate with your good plans. (laughs) I know how gut-wrenching that can be and how hopeless it can feel. When you are insufficient, God is not. God is more than enough. He is the great I am. And when it comes to setting captives free, it's not what you know, it's who you know. And when you know the Lord, it's his power and his righteousness that matter, not your own. Would you pray with me? God, our hearts are broken for those we love and care about who are fighting an enemy or a battle that seems just unwinnable and invincible. It hurts our hearts when people that we care about just seem to be struggling and suffering in all kinds of ways, including those that we know and care about who've lost their way with you and are just not interested in a relationship with you anymore. God, this wrecks us. And yet we often just don't know what to say or do to make a difference. Lord, remind us right now, it's not about what we have to give. It's about what you can do with us, through us, sometimes in spite of us, 
to send us and share your good word of hope and freedom with those who are in captivity. We thank you today for being a God who sees, a God who hears, a God who is concerned, a God who comes down, and a God who sends even us to make a difference, to call slaves toward their freedom. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.